Uh, the scripture reading today, not up behind me, is Exodus 3.16 through 4.17. And you can find that in your pew Bible somewhere, because I don't have one. <clears throat> Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice, And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and reach you and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O Lord, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. 
And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. This is the word of God. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 3. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, it is a, a time where our great and really only desire is to hear from you. Lord, thank you that you are a God who speaks. We pray that we would be a people who listen. And so, by your Spirit, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning who you are in your word, what you're doing in your people, and change our hearts, God, by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had my first job interview of my life when I was about 15 years old. I sat down with Jim Clark the owner and manager of Jim's Foods, more affectionately and properly known as the Aurora Mall. And the, it was one of two grocery stores in the small town I grew up in in Nebraska. But since it had a video section and a hardware department, that apparently is what qualifies you to be able to call yourself a mall in small town America. So it was the Aurora Mall. And uh, I, I sat down for my interview And for approximately three minutes, he asked me a few questions, the most important one being whether or not I had a bicycle that I could ride to work or whether my parents would have to drop me off. And after those few questions, he offered me a job sacking groceries, and that was my first job. And even though it wasn't the most intimidating interview in all of history, I was really nervous. It was my first interview, and I'm thinking, you know, Will I say something stupid? Uh, Will I get the job or not? And if I get it, am I going to do a good job or get myself fired or something like that? But then there are some job interviews where you find yourself in the midst of it beginning to worry, not that you won't get the job, but that you actually will get the job and you're no longer sure you actually want it. You know, maybe in the midst of talking to, you know, your interviewee, you realize, I'm not sure I want to work with these people. Or uh, maybe you begin to become insecure about your ability to perform the job, or you get nervous about what it's actually going to cost you to be successful at this job. And so you begin to kind of sabotage your own job interview. You... Start dropping hints about your lack of interest or availability or, or ways that you're probably not a good fit after all. You, maybe you talk about other companies you've been talking to and are interested in, and you, you just kind of subtly try to get them to move on to the next person. I remember when, uh, when I was interviewing with Westgate, there was another church in the Chicago area who had approached me about the same time. And it was a great church, godly people, but I honestly was just not drawn to them the way I was drawn to Westgate at the time. 
but the process kept moving forward with them, uh, and pretty soon it was moving faster than Westgate, and before long I found myself sitting down for an interview with their search team, thinking to myself, how do I politely railroad this thing? You know, and not because I didn't want to work with them, but our hearts were just drawn to New England, and we were just trying to figure out, how do I sabotage this? Well, if you ever need a model for how to sabotage your own job interview, let me submit to you Moses' example in Exodus 3 and 4. So this morning we're moving back into the book of Moses, uh, or excuse me, the book of Exodus, um, the main character there being Moses, the book of Exodus, the second book in your Bibles, which tells the remarkable story, not just of how uh, a small people group became a great nation, but ultimately about who God is and how he is the kind of God who saves his people for his glory. That's what this story is about. It begins with God fulfilling a big part of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would make them into a great nation. And, and that happens in the opening verses. Uh, but while they're living as refugees in Egypt, their growth and, and becoming a great nation, instead of being seen as a blessing, the king of Egypt views it as a threat. And so he uh, oppresses and enslaves the people of Israel for 400 years. But as we learn very quickly into the story, God has not forgotten his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their descendants, nor has he ignored his people. Uh, we looked at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 last week and saw that this is a God who hears the cries of his people, who sees them in their suffering, who knows their suffering, who remembers his promises, and who comes down to deliver them from where they are to where he wants them to be. And so we're stepping back into that story where, where he reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, and he reveals his plan to rescue Israel. Uh, we're stepping back into that same story this morning because it's a conversation between God and Moses that really stretches all the way to chapter 4, verse 17. Last time, uh, we looked at the beginning of the story and focused mostly on the revelation of God's divine name. God reveals his name, not just what it is, but what it means. Yahweh, the Lord, the I am who I am. Specifically, I am a compassionate God who comes down to be with my people because I'm committed to their salvation. And that's who he revealed himself to be and what his name said about who he is, the I am. So as we come back into the story now, what I want to do this morning is focus on Moses, the servant whom God calls to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, who really finds himself in the most overwhelming job interview in history. So if you look Again, chapter 3, let's, let's start with really Moses' resume. Uh, if you were to put out an ad for someone, you know, wanted a established, accomplished leader who is able to lead an entire nation in revolution and help them migrate to a new area, if you were to put out an ad for, you know, that kind of leader and all the qualifications that they might want, 
Moses would not be someone whose resume would come to the top of the pile. We, we saw a couple uh, weeks ago in chapter 2 that he had a really, uh, a pretty questionable start to his career. He spent his first 40 years in luxury, really, growing up in the uh, household of Pharaoh, being raised by Pharaoh's daughter, sheltered from the suffering of Israel. Uh, and then he spent his next 40 years in obscurity, having been rejected by both Egypt, whom he had grown up with, and Israel, whom he had attempted to help out, but who instead uh, rejected him. And so he resigns himself to settling down in the land of Midian as a sojourner, a wanderer, a, a man without a people or without a land. That's who he has been. And yet, despite his shady resume and the fact that he didn't actually even apply for the job, God calls Moses, of all people, Moses, to the most important leadership role in Israel's history. One day, he's, he's just going about his work, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. God appears to him miraculously, the burning bush, that iconic scene we looked at a few weeks ago. And he tells him, what he's going to do for his people, and how he's going to do it through Moses. And so I want to pick up in chapter 3, verse 7, what we might call the job description. Here is God's plan for rescuing Israel and what role Moses is going to play in it. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God has heard his people. He's seen them. He knows them. And he is going to come down to rescue them from slavery. So what does that have to do with Moses? Well, he elaborates on his plan in verses 9 through 10. And notice how verse 9 echoes verse 7. It kind of picks up a lot of the same words and ideas and repeats them. God's compassion and care for his people. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry, verse 7, and then verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen their oppression. You hear the repetition there. And so verse 9 echoes verse 7, which makes you wonder, does verse 10 echo verse 8? And it does. Both verses 8 and 10 discuss God's plan to deliver his people out of Egypt. But there's one significant difference between the two. In verse 8, God says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. But in verse 10, he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And what that parallel structure does, all of those repetitions with that one change, what that does is suggest to us that verse 10 is interpreting verse 8. 
How is God going to come down and deliver his people? By sending Moses. God will come down by sending Moses. That's his job description. To represent God and accomplish God's plan for delivering his people from one of the most powerful and tyrannical kings in the known world. And so when you come to what we might call the interview in 3.11 through 4.17, it's not hard to see, given the job description, why Moses tries so hard to sabotage this interview for a job he didn't apply for. So verse 11, the section here, 11 through uh, 4.17, it's punctuated with five objections, five objections that Moses offers in response to God's call. And they range from honest humility at the beginning, uh, you know, humble questions, uh, to a downright obstinate refusal by the time the conversation's over. And they really illustrate, I think, uh, what's really a temptation for all of us uh, to think that our own insufficiency or insecurity somehow disqualifies us from being used by God. And yet to each of his five objections, what we're going to see is that, that while Moses is all over the map, God is steadfast in his plan and compassionate toward his servant, his reluctant servant. Because what qualifies and enables Moses to accomplish this call is not what he brings to the table, but the presence of the Lord, the I am who is with him. That's what makes this call possible. And so his his first objection is in chapter 3, verse 11 through 12. And it's really the question of qualification. Moses reacts the way anybody should react if they were to receive this call from God. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What do you want me for? What qualifies me for this terrible job? And, and the truth is nobody's qualified for that kind of job. Uh, but, you know, having peeked at, at Moses' resume a minute ago, He's really not qualified. I mean, he's probably the most likely person that Israel would have come up with to lead them out. And yet, here he is being called. But God's answer to Moses' first objection is really going to, is essentially the same answer he's going to give to the next four objections as well. Verse 12, but I will be with you. Who am I that I should go? Really? That doesn't matter. I will be with you. That's what matters. What qualifies Moses is not his own resume or experience or leadership skills or anything like that. What qualifies him is the presence of God with him. And specifically, the presence of the I am. The words uh, translated, I will be, in the phrase, I will be with you, are the same word and form as the words, I am, later in verses 14 and 15, when God reveals his name. The I am is with you. When God calls a servant, he also qualifies them 
with his own presence. And to assure Moses of that call, he even gives him a sign. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, uh, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Here's your sign. Now, that's a strange sign when you think about it. Because it's a sign that really only works in retrospect. The confirmation that Moses really is called by God will come after Moses obeys the call. It requires him to step out in faith. Faith that what qualifies him is ultimately God's presence with him. So that's his first objection, the, the question of qualification. Um, the next one comes in, in chapter 3, 13 to 22, the question of authority. Moses is, is you know, still trying to take on what... Uh, Uh, take on board what's being asked of him, and he realizes that he's lacking some pretty critical information. Just who is this God that I'm representing? Who's the God who's calling me to go to the people of Israel? Uh, He says in verse verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Again, we talked a little bit about this last time, but you realize how disconnected Moses has become from his God and his people. Who, who is this God? What, what is his name? By what authority am I coming to represent you? He doesn't know who this God is. And, and again, this is where God takes the opportunity to reveal not just what his name is, but what his name means. Yahweh the Lord, you see it in all capital letters in your Bibles, the word Lord in all caps is how it's rendered. But Yahweh, the God who is, I am who I am, and, and who is who he's revealing himself to be in this story. A compassionate God who comes down to be with his people and rescue them from slavery and bring them to himself. That's who he is. That's who he will always be, and that's the answer to what authority Moses goes with to the people of Israel. And because he is this kind of God, he tells Moses exactly what's going to happen when he has this conversation with the leaders of Israel. They will recognize in Moses not his own authority, they will recognize God's authority. When God calls a servant, he authorizes him to do his work. He even tells Moses what's going to happen when he goes to Pharaoh, that he's not going to recognize his authority, not unless he's compelled by a mighty hand, God's hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. God has the authority to compel Pharaoh to let his people go. And he sends Moses, not with Moses' own authority, but with God's authority. When God calls a servant, he authorizes him to do his work. But Moses is not convinced. Uh, He's not convinced that Israel will actually take him seriously. And so he raises the question of credibility, his third objection, in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. So look at verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, 
they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. God just told Moses that they will believe you and listen to your voice. And Moses is like, I'm not buying it. There's no way. And, and it kind of, you know, sounds like a bit of an obstinance there to, to speak to God that way when he's just told you what's going to happen. You're like, no. And, and Moses will get there by the end of the conversation. But I think really here he's still uh, trying to take on board the idea that, that he who has had no relationship with these people is going to show up and they're all of a sudden going to follow his lead. I mean, his credibility, the idea that he would have credibility before Israel is incredible to him. It just doesn't compute. But when God calls a servant, he also validates that servant. And so in his compassion, he addresses Moses' skepticism by giving him three signs that will establish his credibility before the people of Israel, that they might believe him and listen to his voice. Uh, Miraculous signs. This is not sleight of hand type stuff to try and trick them. This is stuff done only with a supernatural power. First, God turns his staff into a snake and then back into a staff again. Then he makes his hand leprous and then restores it to health again. And then if, if neither of those signs work, he tells him, take a cup of water out of the Nile and dump it on the ground and it will become blood. Three signs to establish your credibility, not because of who you are, but because of my power and presence with you. And what's interesting is Moses doesn't actually have to use any of those signs to get Israel to believe him. He uses two of them with Pharaoh. But his credibility, his validation as God's servant comes not from his own ability, but from the power and presence of God. And yet Moses is still bent on sabotaging his interview. So he raises a fourth objection, chapter 4, 10 through 12. The question of ability. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. You want me to go and speak to Israel and then speak to Pharaoh, and I can't not speak very good. That's what he's saying. But Moses still doesn't get it. If what qualifies him and authorizes him and validates him is not what he brings to the table, but God's presence with him, then not even his poor speech is an obstacle to God. That's God's point in verses 11 to 12. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And here again, the, when God says, I will be in verse 12, it's that same phrase, I am. Exact same phrase from his name, I am who I am. The I am will be with your mouth. When God calls a servant, he enables that servant with his very own presence. And so Moses has run out of valid objections. All that's left is fear, obstinacy, and unbelief 
And that's where he lands in verses 13 to 17 in his final objection, the question of willingness. Verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. You've got the wrong guy. And this is where God's patience begins to wear thin with Moses. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. But notice that even in his disappointment and anger, his compassion has not run out. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. God accommodates for Moses' insecurity and inability, even for his fear. He will provide his brother Aaron to assist him. And he promises his presence again throughout this entire interview. He keeps going back to the point that what makes the difference is that I will be with you. And again, it's the same phrase. The I am is with your mouth. But what's interesting is that he does not relieve Moses from his call. Not because he needs Moses but because he wants to use Moses. Moses is his man. He doesn't just send Aaron instead, even though he could have. He has called Moses. And when God calls a servant, he expects them to trust and obey. So how will Moses respond? We'll find out as we move forward in the story next week. But what's clear this morning in this passage is that the effectiveness of God's call does not hang on the person called, but on the presence of the God who calls them. The effectiveness of God's call does not hang on the person called, but on the presence of the God who calls him or her. And when you think about the parallels between Moses' ministry and the call to gospel ministry today, it's not that we are called to lead a national uh, rebellion and, and you know, migrate a people group or, or establish a new covenant between God and his people. Moses' call was very unique to what God was accomplishing uh, through him. But we are all called to be servants of God, every single one of us. All of life is to be lived as an act of worship to him. And the heart of that call is to make disciples of all nations, to make the gospel of Jesus known, the good news of who he is and what he has done, to deal with our sin, and to establish God's kingdom on this earth as it is in heaven through the life, death, and resurrection of his eternal son, Jesus. Whether you are a brand new Christian or a seasoned veteran, we all share in the mission of God 
to bring the gospel of Jesus to bear on every part of life for every person everywhere. That's our mission. And when we think about that call that all of us have received, it's not hard to find ourselves in a similar place to Moses. To think that you know, maybe our lack of experience or our lack of knowledge somehow disqualifies us from really being used by God. I mean, I just don't know enough. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? What if I say something that's wrong or stupid or whatever? Or to think that our insufficiency or our inability somehow disqualifies us from being used or, or makes us a liability to God and his program, that I'm just too sinful and too selfish for God to use me. It's really in everybody's best interest if he just keeps moving on and finds somebody different. I remember when I was training for ministry during grad school uh, and doing an internship at a church at the same time, I remember coming to a point where I realized I had absolutely no clue what I was doing. I had been in ministry for five years. And I, I just, it came to the point where it dawned on me, I don't know how to help somebody walk with God. I don't know how to, how to fix somebody's marriage or, or how, to, how to help somebody be free from bondage to, to a sin. I don't, I don't have the answer. I don't know what to do. It just kind of paralyzed me. I have to figure out something else for my career, I guess. But here's the deal in our story. The story of Moses is not just a story of what God did for Moses. It is the revelation of who God is and how he is the one who calls and qualifies, and authorizes, and validates, and enables his servants, and who expects them to trust and obey that call, to answer the call, not because of what we bring to the table, but because of who he is, and the fact that he is with us. Just like Moses there's not a single one of us who has an impressive resume when it comes to serving God. Many of us have unimpressive resumes even by the world's standards. That is actually Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is the one who qualifies and enables his servants. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, 
boast in the Lord, not in himself. What enables us to serve the Lord, to trust and obey his call, is not what we bring to the table. It's not believing in yourself or trying harder. Uh, It's not about reading the right books or, or going to seminary or anything like that, though those things can be very helpful. It's not even about following Moses' example. What enables us to serve the Lord is being united with the one who fulfilled Moses' example, the true and better servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. It's interesting to think again about the, the parallels between Jesus and Moses that we see throughout the story of Exodus. God said he would come down by sending Moses, that that Moses would speak as God and Aaron would be his prophet. In Jesus, God literally came down to rescue his people. And he didn't just represent God. He didn't just speak as God or like God. He is God. God in the flesh. He took humanity into his divinity that he might dwell with us, that he might serve his father by saving his people. He is the only one who is truly qualified, authorized, validated, and able to accomplish God's plan because of what he brings to the table. He is qualified. And yet, Like Moses, the father still expected him to trust and obey, to follow through with their plan, to show their love to the world. And he did it perfectly. He alone has done it perfectly. He's the only person in history who has perfectly served the will of his father, who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's the true and better servant sent by the Father. But just as the Father sent the Son, so Jesus tells us in John 20, so the Son sends us. We have a call to make the gospel known. He calls us. He qualifies us authorizes, validates, and enables us not because of who we are, but because of our union with the perfect servant, Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The gospel of Jesus is all that we have as servants of God, and it is enough. That is the only way I'm able to be in pastoral ministry. When I went through that period of deep insecurity, just clueless as to how I could ever be useful to God. I had nothing to offer. 
what God told me and, and showed me in that time and what he has reminded me of multiple times since. What I think he's saying to us in this passage this morning is that what qualifies and equips us for serving him is not who we are or what we can do, but who Jesus is and what he has already done for us. Funny story. Uh, as many of you know, uh, our, our brother Garrett, uh, who passed away this week, was on the search team who brought me to Westgate. One of the first people that we met when we came here. And at some point, I'm try, I was trying to remember, is either during the interview process or shortly after the whole thing was done and, and you had extended the call and we'd received it, somewhere in that early timeline, Garrett says to me, you know, if we had received your resume through the mail and not from a trusted recommendation, it would have gone straight into the trash can. There was nothing impressive about it. The only thing I had to offer then, the only thing I still have to offer today, the only thing any of us have to offer to a world that is hurting and in need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is, what he has done to take the suffering of this world and make it his own to take all of our sin, your sin, my sin, every evil and selfish and sinful thing we've ever thought, said, or done, or ever will think, do, or say, and to fold it into his suffering on the cross, to bear the full weight of God's holy anger against sin and exhaust that punishment that he might deal justly with sin and mercifully with sinners to redeem us and rescue us and make us whole to give us new life through his resurrection from the dead that is our only hope and it is enough it is enough that is our sufficiency as servants of God. And so whatever your fears, whatever insecurities, whatever objections you might raise in the interview, I'm too busy. You know, Who's going to watch all of these sheep, God, if I go back to Egypt? I've got too much on my plate. I'm too sinful and rotten. God, God would never even accept me, let alone use me. Whatever your objections might be, however we might try to sabotage the interview, one by one, Jesus strips them away until we realize that the only thing we have is the only thing that matters. The presence of God through Jesus by the Spirit. That's what calls us. That's what qualifies us. That's what authorizes us. That's what validates our call. That's what enables us to obey. And God wants us to trust him and obey that call. When God calls a servant, 
He qualifies, authorizes, validates, enables them, and expects them to trust and obey. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, the covenant with Moses, but of the Spirit, the new covenant in Christ. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, how overwhelming is it to think that you would not only accept us, but call us to serve you and the things you're doing in this world. And God, we confess that we are not qualified. We confess sometimes we think we are. We think you're lucky to have us on your team. But Lord, when we consider who you are and all of your holiness and majesty, and we consider what's at stake in the salvation of souls, the, the renewal of this broken world through the truth of your gospel, we are not worthy, we are not able, we have nothing, God. And we thank you that you have not left us there, but instead you have sent your Son to be our perfect qualification, to be our validation, to be our power and ability. God, be with us that we might serve you and that you might receive the glory through it. And would you be pleased to make us faithful and fruitful to that call here in the Metro West, that men and women would turn from sin and find hope and new life and joy, a joy that nothing in this broken world can take away, a joy that comes from being satisfied and secure in Jesus. Would you be pleased to use us to make that joy and hope known? You have called us. Equip us. Use us. In Jesus' name, amen.